Well, please do have your Bible open at the 16th chapter of Matthew as we continue to consider together uh, the life and the ministry of this wonderful Saviour of whom we've been singing. I wonder if questions such as, as these ever cross your mind, or if they do, how often? What does it take to persuade someone about the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Christian gospel. Just what does it take? What can you do, what can you do to try and convince someone that they, na- they need to take Jesus seriously? Are you, perhaps, someone who is resolutely digging in your heels, claiming that no one yet has been able to convince you. What can we learn from the Sadducees and the Pharisees in their falsehood? And these who are supposed spiritual leaders in Israel, yet who miss the whole point. Well, there are some important questions that this passage is going to help us answer this morning. Well, chapter 15 concludes with the feeding of the 4,000, and then we're told that Jesus and his disciples get back into their boats, and they sail south along the western shore of Galilee, Uh, We discover that at the the close of the the 15th chapter, they came to the region of Magdala. Uh, If you look at uh, an image of the Sea of Galilee, uh, you'll see that it's, it's shaped a little bit like the outline of a bunch of grapes. It's kind of wide at the top and then it narrows towards the bottom. Uh, And this bulge at its widest point, uh, about a third of the way down, it's about eight miles across from one side to the other. And this region that's mentioned there at the end of chapter 15 uh, is on the, uh, the western shore at this widest part of the lake. And that's where Jesus now is. And so in the first verse of chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples, they've arrived back on this western shore, about a third of the way down the lake. Uh, They're now in a region which is much more Jewish. Uh, You'll recall that previously they've been in Gentile regions, but they're back very much in Jewish territory. Uh, They've moved from the site of Decapolis, which was predominantly Gentile, and here they are now much more amongst uh, the Jewish people. And it doesn't take long for this group of Pharisees and Sadducees to arrive on the scene. We don't know how many there were, uh, whether they were just a few representatives or whether there was a very large group of them, but they arrive on the scene to try and see if they can get Jesus to do or say something or not to be able to that they can use against him. And what we learn first of all uh, in this passage is The heart is the great barrier to faith, not the evidence. 
The heart is the barrier to faith, not the evidence or the claimed lack of evidence. Now, it's interesting that the Pharisees and the Sadducees arrived together because, on the whole, these two groups of men didn't really get on with each other. They didn't have an awful lot in common. The Pharisees were mostly fairly popular amongst the people and reasonably well-respected and well-thought of. They did have a desire for holiness and for their nation of Israel to be under the blessing of God. Of course, where they went very wrong is that they thought that the only way that that could ever be achieved was by giving themselves to a very strict and precise regime of obedience to the law given by God, and in addition to that, uh, what was known as the oral tradition of the rabbis, which had also been written down for them, many, many laws for them to keep. Uh, but of course, over the centuries, they also developed a very unhealthy liking for personal reputation. They developed a, a really prideful sense of their own standing within the community. Humility wasn't really in their vocabulary. The, the Sadducees were not religious men in the same way. They were much more political and philosophical than they were spiritual. They were very powerfully connected with those who were in the very top echelons of Jewish life and society. They were, for the most part, what had become known as Hellenized Jews, which means that they were very much influenced by the Greek and Roman cultures of their day, and they were ready to compromise on spiritual things. And they attempted to to find this blend of religion and culture uh, with many of the components of, of the Greek and Roman world in which they all lived. Many of them were not too concerned about their Roman overseers. And the reason for that is was many of them had been able to exploit it for their own good. Many of them had been able to get personal benefit from it, so it didn't trouble them too much. The Sadducees were much more worldly-minded than the Pharisees were. Their interest as Sadducees was much more about material prosperity and worldly power. Uh, one of the things that was a big dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was the issue of the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe that there would be a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees just dismissed that completely. But both of these groups see Jesus as a real threat to them, a threat to their ideals, a threat to their aims, a threat to their influence. And so they actually join forces to work against Jesus. And Matthew knows that anyone who's reading his gospel account in their own day, uh, particularly those original readers who might have picked up copies of this gospel account, when they see and hear of the Pharisees and Sadducees working together, they know that these two groups of men are up to something. No good can be coming when the Pharisees and Sadducees are working as one on a common project. It's a bit like watching a coalition government, I suppose, as the two parties try to find some common ground despite their very different 
political ideologies. So these religious leaders, as the people saw them, by coming to Jesus, we see that they demand a sign from heaven at the end of verse 1. Show us a sign from heaven. Making it clear that in their opinion, none of the signs that Jesus has already performed are sufficient to convince them. Uh, that's what Jesus means when he talks about them not discerning the signs of the times. He's talking about the things that he is doing, the miracles that they've all seen him perform. No, these are insufficient, these men are saying. So they're asking him for a more spectacular sign. Specifically, they ask for a sign from heaven. So what do they have in mind here? What, what, how are they thinking? Well, probably what they want is something which, as far as they can tell, is beyond any form of human trickery or illusion or sleight of hand. Let's see manna falling from heaven as it happened in the wilderness. Let's see the sun stopping in the sky as it did for Joshua. Uh, let's see fire falling down from heaven as it did for Elijah on Mount Carmel. Show us a sign sufficient to convince us that you cannot be an imposter. One that will prove to us finally that you are the Messiah because it cannot in any way be something that is being interfered with by human hands. It cannot in any way be something of human invention because it's coming from up there down to us. Well, we learn a very important truth from these men. It's one that you've heard me say many times before. It's one that I'm going to say many times yet. It's the sinful heart that is the great barrier to faith in Christ. Not the evidence. Not the lack of evidence. They've had more evidence than they could possibly hope to have. And Jesus makes this clear again in this exchange with these men. There would have been no response that Jesus could have made to their demand that would have been satisfactory for them. Nothing. There was no openness in their heart to be convinced by any sign, by any evidence, by any proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice that Matthew tells us explicitly that their purpose is to put Jesus to the test or to tempt him. They're here to catch him out. This is not a friendly test because they genuinely want to be convinced. This is a test intended to make him look bad. This is a test they are sure he cannot match. Their desire is to embarrass him, to shame him, and hopefully to discredit him in front of everybody. They're not there asking this for their own spiritual welfare. They're asking this to try and make sure that the crowds do not follow this Jesus anymore. 
Matthew's already told us what the response of the Pharisees is to an undeniable heavenly sign. Back in chapter 12, Jesus has been casting out demons. And what do the Pharisees conclude about him at that point in his ministry? Well, of course, they say, he's doing this by the power of Satan. He's demonic. That's where he gets this power from. They cannot deny the things they see Jesus doing, and so they resort to this kind of claim against him. No matter what Jesus does, they will find a reason for not believing. And so Jesus responds to them with a very stinging rebuke in verses 2 and 3. It might not sound very much to us, perhaps, but this really, this really is getting at them. These are the top men in Israel. These are the men who the whole nation looks up to. And Jesus publicly accuses them of being far better weathermen than they are theologians. That is a devastating rebuke to those men. That is a huge affront to their pride. Uh, well, of course, the verses we have there, we're very familiar with them, aren't we? Red sky at night, shepherd's delight and all that, or sailor's delight, whichever way you want to put it. Uh, we're familiar with these sayings. You know, even lowly shepherds know about this. They can recognize the signs of the weather, but these spiritual signs, which attest and confirm the identity and the ministry of Christ, that show them and tell them, this is God's new covenant arriving in this man who is God. The things that they really should be switched on to, which are far more clear, even than the red sky at night, they are completely lost on them. They simply cannot see. They will not see. They refuse to see. What a rebuke. These are the men who are supposed to be devoted to the spiritual, to the Word of God, to leading the people into understanding the unseen realities of God. But it turns out they're only good for telling people about common sense, seen realities like the weather. Blind guides indeed leading the blind. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, the only sign he's going to give them is the sign of Jonah. He simply refuses to give in to their request. Now, he's already mentioned the sign of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. You can find it in verses 39 to 41. He uses the same phrase and he explains that the sign of Jonah refers, as we just heard before, to his death and resurrection on the third day, just as Jesus went down into the, into the depth of the sea inside the fish and was there for three days. So Jesus will be in the tomb, gone, dead, out of sight for three days, but he will rise again. And so the sign of Jonah, they will receive. That will happen. They will witness it. They will hear of it. Of course, Jesus' resurrection is at the very heart of gospel proof that he is the Messiah, that he rose again. 
The Bible commentator William Hendrickson says this, What a sign this death and resurrection would be for the Pharisees, who were constantly planning Jesus' death, with no fear that he would ever be able to conquer death. They thought that once they get, that once they get rid of him, that'll be it, he'll be gone. Because that wasn't to be. What a sign it was for the Sadducees, who did not even believe in a resurrection. That would be the sign given to them, that he was indeed the Messiah. You'll have to wait for that sign, Jesus is saying to them. You want a sign? Oh, there's going to be a sign. You wait and see. The Bible continues to press upon you the evidence concerning Christ, which is crystal clear. The signs are as bright as the day. Have you believed in him who died for our sins and who was buried and rose again and who now ever lives? If you haven't, the problem is your heart. It's not the evidence. It's not the lack of evidence that's keeping you from Christ. It's the state of your heart. It is darkened hearts. We're going to be singing with the children. Dark is the, is the state of our soul in our sinfulness. How we need to pray that even the children will understand that and see their need of Christ. It's, it's darkened hearts that keeps sinners from seeing who Jesus is. It is darkened hearts that keeps them from wanting to bow the knee to his lordship. The way of unbelief is to take the position that there is nothing wrong with my sense of reason. There is nothing wrong with my ability to assess the facts that are presented before me. It's up to you Christians to prove it. You prove it. You show me the evidence that will convince me. Make your case stronger so that I have no choice other than to believe. That's what the, that's what the lost will say. And too many Christians get all het up over that, thinking, oh, I've got to find a proof, I've got to find a proof, I've got to find a proof. No, you don't. They need a changed heart. Too many Christians get all het up over not knowing enough clever stuff to be able to answer all their questions so you can convince them. You will never convince them. It takes the power of the Spirit of God to change them. They don't need to be convinced. They need to be changed. And only God can do that. So you don't need to be worrying, what would I say? How would I answer? They're just trying to deflect you away from the direct truths and demands of the gospel. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want you to press them further on that. So instead, they'll take you down a side road. No, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that instead then maybe I'll be convinced. Jesus frequently never answered the questions he was asked. Sometimes he did, but often he'd just fire a question straight back at them. Or he'd just come out with a statement of truth and leave them with it. Think on this. So we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees here. 
give me the kind of sign that will convince me. But they have no intention of being convinced. Unless God renews them, they have no, they have no capacity to be convinced. The great Bible teacher of the, uh, the last century, G. Campbell Morgan, he said this once, unbelief is not a failure in intellectual understanding. Unbelief is disobedience to the clear commands of God. And he's right. He's right. So Christians, you need to keep on praying that God will open hearts, that he will cause blind eyes to see. that he will open up minds that they might understand and grasp and comprehend the truths of the gospel concerning Christ. And if you're someone who's not converted, but you do have a desire to see these things, what you don't need is more truth and more evidence. You've all you need already on the page of the Bible. What you need is to ask God to give you the eyes to see what's already there to give you the ears to truly hear, to give you the heart and mind to truly understand and obey. That's what's needed. There's a form of ignorance and foolishness in the sinful hearts of men and women, and it prevents them from turning to Christ. And the ultimate proof of that is seen in these Sadducees and Pharisees, how much more do they want to see? They had great human wisdom. These are men who have a tremendous capacity for learning. They have all kinds of wisdom about the natural world, things that they understand. But none of that automatically means that they can understand the spiritual. Um, a man or woman may be brilliant about the things of this life, yet totally blind to spiritual things. They might have great knowledge about any subject, but be utterly hopeless in their knowledge of eternal things. And Jesus here in his reference to Jonah is repeating something he's already said. He said this very thing back in chapter 12. And how and why is that helpful? Well, I think it's helpful for this reason. We can learn from Jesus that sometimes there is only so much that can be said. Once the truth has been proclaimed, the only thing that's left for us to do is proclaim the truth again. Jesus frequently did this. When it comes to the truth of the Bible and of the gospel, if it doesn't work the first time, or the second time, or the third time, or whatever time. What you don't do is go and try and find new or different things to say on every subsequent uh, occasion. No, you just repeat what you've already said. Because there is only one gospel, one saviour, one truth. We just have to keep on saying it. And be faithful. William Hendrickson again, he says this, in asking for a sign from heaven, these men did not realize that the sign from heaven was standing right in front of them. 
but they cannot see. Hearts need to be opened. This is a fearful warning about the dangers of hard-heartedness before the truth of God's word. The heart is the great barrier to faith, not the evidence. If you've never turned to Christ, you must. A second lesson we can learn as we continue through from verse 5 is, Christian, take great care who you follow. Take great care who you follow. There's this exchange that takes place between Jesus and his disciples and he issues a warning to them about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But at first, they misunderstand what it is that Jesus is teaching them. We've seen that Jesus doesn't allow himself to become embroiled in argument and dispute with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's interesting, isn't it? At the end of verse 4, he left them and departed, and he goes away with his disciples. Jesus has said all he has to say, and so he leaves them. Uh, is Jesus being callous or hard-hearted for doing this? Uh, where's, where's the famed compassion that we've mentioned so much in recent weeks? Where's his compassion towards these men? Well, no, that's not the issue here. The, the issue is that Jesus is not going to cast his pearls before swine and have them trample them underfoot. These men have heard and seen more than enough. There are others who haven't yet heard, so it's time to move on. And so at verse 5, they've travelled to the far side of the lake, and the disciples point out to Jesus that they've forgotten to bring any bread for them to eat. And with that, Jesus uses the mention of bread as an opportunity to say something about these false leaders of Israel. Jesus warns them and us to be careful about the spiritual leaders who we choose to follow. Jesus gives them a warning about leaven. Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be careful how you think about these men. Be careful what you think about these men. So Jesus uses the picture of leaven, like yeast in bread, which spreads through the whole batch of the dough. Of course, he's using it as an illustration, but they take him literally. They think he's still talking about literal bread at this point, and that he's rebuking them for not having that bread. But Jesus still has on his mind this encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he has in view his disciples, and is giving them a warning against the character and the teaching of these men. The Pharisees and Sadducees were revered, they were respected. Uh, you recall that back in uh, chapter 15 at verse 12, the disciples said to Jesus, don't you realize you're offending these men? And clearly that was something that bothered the disciples. 
we need to remember the disciples have grown up under the teaching and influence of these people. It's probably quite hard for them to hear Jesus speaking about these men in this way. Maybe some of you, like me, you've had times when you've, you've had to come to realize that uh, those who you've looked up to over the years uh, were not leading you in all of the truth concerning the gospel and in concerning your understanding of God's word. They weren't in the same league as these Pharisees and Sadducees, but they've actually been misleading you in certain things. They may be people you've spent many years with. It's hard, it's hard to think negatively or critically about them. Often they've been sincere believers. Often in many ways they've done you much good. But there are areas or, or issues where they've been completely muddled and left you the same. Well, that's probably how these disciples felt in many ways about the criticism that Jesus brings against these spiritual leaders in Israel. But Jesus says, no, their, their teaching is like leaven. It's like yeast in bread. And if, if ever you've actually made bread, you will know that the, the yeast is really worked into the dough, isn't it? You knead it and you knead it. That's what knead with a K. You knead it and knead it so that the yeast gets into every part of the dough so that all of the dough will rise evenly and you'll have a lovely loaf at the end. And Jesus is saying here, the false teaching of these men, it can be very subtle. And sometimes false teaching gets mixed with that which is true. But its presence gets everywhere. You need to be aware of these people. You need to be very wary of false teachers, Jesus says. Because only a little needs to get in. You only need a little yeast in a very large loaf. But a little is all that's required. And it will spread and it can grow. And it can move out into every part. It can do that in you. It can do it in a local church. And it produces gradual decay. It produces no good. And Jesus is warning his disciples, no, you must remain on your guard about such men. You must remain on your guard about such things. His disciples are working hard, but it takes them a while to understand. But eventually the penny will drop with them, what Jesus is saying. But this kind of warning that Jesus brings his, his disciples is just as important for us today. Be careful who you follow. Be sure that you know that what they're saying is true. Be sure that you know that what they're saying is relevant. Be sure that you know that what they're saying is according to the word of God. Be sure, be careful, be aware who you follow. And of course, supremely, it's not about following any man. It's about being a follower of Christ. Be a follower of him. Be following him. And only take note of those who all they want to do is point you to him and say, look at him, look to him, follow him. 
Heed what he says. Put all your trust and hope in him. Because it's about following Christ. Who are you following? Who are you trusting? Who is your hope in? It needs to be in Christ. And hand in hand with that, thirdly, as Jesus continues, uh, Christians must avoid false teaching. Well, at verse 8, Jesus picks up by rebuking them for thinking that he was talking about actual bread when he mentioned the word leaven. Uh, Why do you reason among yourselves because you have no bread? And he challenges their faith. Because he says, even if I was talking, even if we were talking about bread, um, and even if you have forgotten to bring bread with you, have you forgotten so soon what you should have already learned? How is your faith so small that you're worrying about not having bread when fresh in your memory is my feeding of the 5,000 and my feeding of the 4,000 and on both occasions with an impossibly small amount of food and with an impossibly large quantity of leftovers? How have you forgotten that? You're still worrying about having no bread? How many times have you experienced or been reminded of God's protection, God's provision, God's preservation, and still you become overwhelmed by anxiety? Will we not learn with the disciples to have Christ, to be with Christ is enough? But Jesus takes them on in the conversation. He says, listen, I'm actually not talking about bread, though. I'm talking about the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is verse 11. I'm actually not talking about bread. I'm talking about these men. I'm talking about mixing among people with their wrong teaching and mixing among people with their bad example. And finally, by verse 12, the penny begins to drop with the disciples that they understand, ah, it's the the doctrine, the teaching of these men that's the issue. We must avoid false teaching. Be careful who you follow and avoid false teaching. He reminds us again that as Christians, we must avoid false teaching like the plague. And of course, this avoiding of false teaching goes hand in hand with who you follow. So by repetition and by emphasis, Jesus manages to get through to the disciples this main point. The teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is pernicious, it's spiritually harmful. You must avoid it. And the kind of ways that the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought and behaved, uh, we can still find that uh, today in different guises and in different forms, but it's all still there. 500 years ago, John Calvin said this, all those who mix inventions with the Word of God or who impart something alien to the Word of God are to be rejected. 
however honourable their rank or their title. So here's someone who takes the word of God, but then they want to introduce this thing as well. They want to mix this thing into it. No, you, you just reject them. You're to reject them. So Calvin's saying, I don't, it doesn't matter how many degrees you've got, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've got a title in front of your name. If you don't teach only the word of God, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. You be careful to listen only to those who teach the authoritative word of God. These men do not. They want to mix in all kinds of other things. They want to add this, take away that, dilute this, compromise there. Make sure the people you're listening to, they do not take away from the word of God. Make sure they do not want to add to the word of God. If someone comes along with a, some new idea, some supposed truth, some supposed body of knowledge, and that's how these Pharisees and Sadducees were. No, you need this as well as the Bible. Take, on, take this on board, because this will help you to understand. But it's something that the Bible doesn't contain. This Bible plus... Christianity. It, it has to be the Bible plus this. And the Bible plus reduces the Bible to being only part of the answer. Anyone who says, yes, what you read in the Bible is all, buddy, all well and good, but you also need this, they're saying that the Bible is not sufficient. It reduces Jesus and his gospel to being only part of the answer. And if Jesus and his word is not the way, is not the truth, is not the life, and if you have not come to the Father except by him and by him alone, then you have nothing. You have nothing. The all-sufficiency of the Bible alone, of Christ alone, of the gospel alone, received by faith alone, by the grace of God alone. If that's not what someone is teaching, then it's time to turn and run and to put as much distance between you and them as you possibly can. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples with these men in his day, because that's their situation. There's nothing new under the sun, you know. This is what was going on then, and it's what many Christians face today. And if you are someone who is standing outside of Christ this morning, this is what you must do. This is what you must run to because Christians receive this warning of what they must run from but this is what you must run to. You must run to the truth of God's word, to Christ, to his cross, to the resurrected and ever-living Saviour. You have all the truth, all the evidence you will ever need hearing God's word 
God now commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.